0: So to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation on October 31, and the 125th anniversary of Kenilworth Union Church, founded 1892, Joe and Katie and I are going to preach a sermon series called Stained Glass, in which we'll use the windows in this room as visual aids to remind ourselves that we're a mosaic. The global church is a mosaic made up of different parts. Today, perhaps the most spectacular window in this room is uh, it's in the narthex behind you. You can't see it, so I put it on your bulletin. By the way, I forgot to give attribution to the talented photographer who took the photo on your bulletins. is Warren Guthrie, one of our own semi-professional photographer. So the window in the narthex is some, sometimes called the Psalm 19 window, sometimes called the God window, because that window is trying to tell the story that the choir just sang that Susan will play in a moment through Benedetto Marcello, and which I will now read uh, for you from the Hebrew Psalter, one of the most popular psalms of all, Psalm 19. And I want you to notice that halfway through the psalm, the the song takes a hard right turn, sort of veers off topic. But there is a reason for this. St. Augustine, 1,500 years ago, said that God has two books, to tell us about God's self. There is the book of creation, as in that window, and there is the book of Scripture, the wisdom of the Lord. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice does go out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. For in the heavens God sets a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of the sky and nothing is hidden from the sun's heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let the words of our mouths and our meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, in Fairfield County, where my last church was, and here on the North Shore, I encounter many people that I refer to affectionately as Christian agnostics. Christian agnostics love the church. They love the fine folk they meet on Kenilworth Avenue every seventh day. They love this sacred space, one of the most beautiful in town. They love the music. They love the Christian code of conduct. It's God they're not sure about. It's all this spooky metaphysics, religious codes of conduct insist on hauling along with them. And I am sympathetic. America marks a sad and solemn anniversary tomorrow and it might be well for us to pause tomorrow and remember that among all the people who died on 9-11, the most passionate God-fearers were the terrorists who flew those airplanes into those Twin Towers. The last words on their dying lips, Allahu Akbar, God is great. And then, as I speak, Irma is running up the coast of Florida. A few days ago, Harvey Looked like it was targeted right on the city of Houston. In South Asia, monsoons. In Mexico, earthquakes. In North Korea, Kim Jong-un. Sometimes this looks like a shabbily managed establishment, doesn't it? And so for many people, and I get this, for many people, theology is, as the old wags put it, the search at midnight in a dark room for a black cat that doesn't exist. And yet, without God, the whole thing seems like a house of cards, doesn't it? It just doesn't seem worth it. Seems empty and vacuous without God. So I'm going to look at some reasons to believe in the existence of God. There are many of these reasons to believe in God. Some of them are kind of inferior, but some of them are quite substantial. First, the inferior ones. For instance, there's the mercenary reason for believing in God. That is to say, maybe I believe in God because there's something in it for me. You see, here's the thing. Neither atheism nor theism is a demonstrable hypothesis. We'll never know which one is true until the end of time. In fact, it's harder to prove that something doesn't exist than that it does, right? Prove to me that Santa Claus doesn't exist. Prove to me that there is no Loch Ness Monster. Prove to me that there are no little green men on Mars. Both of them, atheism and theism, are blind throws on the roulette wheel. And since theism promises an infinitely richer return, why not bet that way? If you're wrong, no big deal. Whereas if the Christians are right and you choose not to believe in God, you are in big trouble. This is often called Pascal's wager after the 17th century French mathematician who invented the adding machine, the barometer, and differential calculus. It's wiser to bet on God, said Pascal. But that seems cheap, doesn't it? Believing in something just because there's something in it for me? so much for the mercenary reason for believing in God. There's also the utilitarian reason, which is almost as cheap as the mercenary reason. The utilitarian reason for believing in God says that belief in God is good for me. If I believe in God, I become a kinder, nobler, bigger human being. Former Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, used to tell about two academics in his parish who were very publicly, honestly agnostic. And yet they insisted in enrolling their children in the Sunday school of the local parish. And when people asked them why they wanted their children to hear the Christian story, if they themselves didn't believe it, they complained about cheap standards in secular society and said that they wanted their children to be part of a large story that gave them hope and meaning. Someday, these parents said, our children might grow up to reject that story, but at least they'll be familiar with it. We don't want diminished children, they told the archbishop. Right? We don't want diminished children. A whole raft of Christian journals are reporting the results of recent surveys which show that God-fearing children get better grades, turn out to be more caring citizens, and have fewer fights, fewer beers, fewer cigarettes, fewer joints, fewer casual one-night stands, and fewer stints in the rehab center than non-God-fearing children. God is very good for you. But, of course, the utilitarian reason is about as cheap as the mercenary reason, right? You don't subscribe to something just because it's good for you. All good things aren't true things. Believing in Santa Claus is a good thing. That doesn't make them exist. Believing in miracles when your wife is dying of stage 4 ovarian cancer is a good thing, but that doesn't mean she will live. Believing in the Detroit Tigers is a very good thing, but that doesn't mean they'll win the pennant. So nobler reasons for believing in God. There's the awful reason. Awful in the old ancient sense of filled with awe. Yes. Yesterday. Yesterday was what I call a 9-11 day because the sky was so blue and the air was so clear and humidity was about 10%. You wake up on a day like yesterday and you go outside into this glorious creation and before you can think about it your instinct is to say thank you whom are you talking to these are precognitive emotions right how awful would it be if there were no one to thank You've heard of the uh, Russian girl in the former Soviet Union who took a civil service examination. And this exam made her very nervous. She wanted this job so bad, and she thought she did okay on this examination, but she was nervous about her results, especially her answer to one question on the test. She thought she knew the right answer. The question was, what is the inscription on the sermon wall? She thought she knew it was from Karl Marx religion is the opiate of the people that was something she really believed too religion is the opiate of the people she thought that was the inscription on the wall so as soon as the exam was over she ran the seven miles from Leningrad to the sermon wall and sure enough there it was Karl Marx religion is the opiate of the people is the inscription on the sermon wall and before she could think about it she dropped to her knees and crossed herself and said thank God But then after the awful reason for believing in God, there's the the reason reason. That is to say, it could be the case that Christianity makes more sense of more facts than alternative hypotheses. I don't think science has come as near, as close as it thinks it has to explaining this universe. Yeah, I know, scientific achievements are giving less and less for God to do as century succeeds century. There was... Newton in the 17th century, uh, Darwin in the 19th century, Einstein in the 20th century, Hawking in the 21st. There's less and less for God to do. Still, there there are these questions that science is not adequate to answer. Why is there something and not nothing? Why is there life and not just inanimate dust? Why is there mind and not just brain? Why this quantum leap from nothingness to somethingness, from an infinitesimal singularity to a universe 46 billion light-years across? Why this irrepressible surge of life out of insentient rock, this inexorable pressure to replicate, to copulate, to populate, to complicate? Fred Hoyle, says that the probability that amino acids combined into the right shape and order to create the soup of life is roughly the same as rolling 50,000 straight sixes on unloaded dice. An Anglican priest, also a theoretical physicist, puts it this way, atheists are not stupid, they just explain less. Why Bach or Van Gogh or Raphael? Evolution cannot explain Mozart's Second Clarinet Concerto. Darwin explains chimp-like intelligence, but not cave drawings, not Hamlet, not Starry Night. Harry Emerson Fosdick may have been the greatest American white preacher of the 20th century, and he used to tell us that it's important to doubt your doubts. Maybe that's why I believe, because I am learning to doubt my skepticism. I'm learning to doubt my doubt. And maybe in the end, we believe because Psalm 19 makes perfect sense to us, yes. These two books by which God reveals God's self, the book of creation, that perfect autumn day we had yesterday, and the book of the Torah, the book of Scripture, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, perfect, charming, winsome, giving life. These, these wisdoms are so deep, there must be divinity behind it. And so in a moment, we will break the bread, and we will wonder at the miracle of Dirt morphing into energy. And we will drink the wine and taste the heat of the sun. And you sit there in the pew, holding your wife's hand, and her hip presses happily against yours, and her shoulder brushes pleasantly against yours. And you wonder, whom have I to thank for this? And you're humbled by this unseen but palpable mystery and so as frederick Beekner puts it maybe we believe because i am led to suspect the reality of wonders i cannot name and sense meanings no less overwhelming because they can only be hinted at in myths and rituals and in foolish left-handed games and in cloudy novels Where in great laughter, perhaps, or certain silences, I glimpse a destination that I can never fully know until I reach it. Through some moment of beauty or of pain, some sudden turning of my life, I catch glimpses, at least, of what the saints are blinded by. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen.